Hi, you're listening to The Beauty Brains. And welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your questions about beauty products and give you an insider's look at the beauty industry. This is episode 195. I'm your host, Valerie, and with me today is my co-host, Perry Romanowski. Hello, Valerie. So good to have you back. I'm glad to be back. On today's episode, we're going to answer a ton of beauty questions about color cosmetics for protection from the sun. Is it okay to apply baking soda to your skin? What's up with mineral oil and other fillers in cosmetics? And do beauty supplements really help improve your looks? Well, it sounds like we have a packed show. We do, we do. Um, It's been a long time since we've had a chance to talk. I know I've been out with some medical challenges and traveling for work, and you have been literally not at home. (laughs) I know, I've been literally traveling around the world, trips to... California to California again to Florida to Italy. Woo! I'm finally back, finally back home for at least a little while. Yeah, you sound a little bit like me. What stinks is the day you came to Los Angeles, I actually had to be somewhere else for work and we couldn't connect. That sort of stinks. Yeah, that was uh, that was actually a, a pretty good show. And actually, there was a guy before me. There were two talks. I, so I gave the talk, and I gave the talk on clean beauty, which we'll get to momentarily. But uh, there was a guy who did a talk before me uh, about the wonders of hyaluronic acid. And there was some interesting stuff, but can I just say, if you're giving a presentation... Don't use font size 12 on your slides. <laughs> it's very distracting. <laughs> Big fonts, people. <laughs> anyway, he did this talk on uh, hyaluronic acid, and someone on Twitter asked me about how a company can claim 75% hyaluronic acid when you can only make a 2% solution of uh, HA before it gets too thick. You ever try to like thicken uh, hyaluronic acid? and So if you just take water and you... Dump in. Once you get to 2%, it gets so thick, it's a gel, and you can't put anything else in there. So how do you imagine they, you know, claim 75% HA in a product? I think it's 75% of a solution. Right, and that's that seems a little bit misleading to me. You know, it's not, it's not 75%. Because a consumer is going to see 75% hyaluronic acid on the side of the label, and they're going to think there's 75% hyaluronic acid in there. But there's not. There's 75% of a 2% solution, right? Yeah, it's certainly not very honest. And I, I think that's where marketing comes into play a little bit. Or maybe they've done something we don't know. I think it's more likely it's marketing. Yeah, well, I did ask the expert of this, and he sort of danced around the question. But I, I did he get on his tap shoes? His, <laughs> <laughs> he did. Well, it was it was L.A., right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, I think ultimately he sort of skirted around it, but he kind of said that too. Well, that's kind of a marketing thing. Oh well, well that happens. Well, are you ready to get on the, with the show? Yeah, let's get going. <laughs> We're going to start with our segment, Beauty News, and I read an article that basically says clean beauty is not safer. No kidding. 
<laughs> no way. An editorial article was recently published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Dermatology, about clean beauty. That publication is colloquially known as JAMA, and it's an international peer-reviewed journal that has been in continuous publication since the late 1800s. They publish information concerning the skin, its diseases, and their treatment. The article was really an editorial pub portion of the journal that argued that the arbitrary terms of clean or natural to denote that the product doesn't contain any of the hundreds of demonized ingredients does not make products safer for consumers. Additionally, ingredients they feel are denounced haphazardly in an attempt to greenwash the product. The authors then claim that the ingredients that have been recommended by dermatologists for years to treat skin conditions are making these lists. For example, Whole Foods has denounced petrolatum, which has been recommended by dermatologists for decades to patients with skin barrier disruption due to its non-allergenicity, great qualities as a humectant, and economical costs that make it accessible to patients of all backgrounds. I think that's one of the most damaging aspects of this whole clean beauty or natural beauty uh, movement. We're losing ingredients that actually have some really great functionality and they actually have great benefits for skin. Uh, and just these irrational fears and fake marketing is really harming the consumer. Exactly. And they bring up parabens. So interestingly enough about parabens, parabens we all know are denounced by nearly every clean beauty brand and even brands that aren't trying to be perceived as clean beauty to customers but it's actually the least allergenic preservative that is used on the market. In fact, the American Contact Dermatitis Academy named it the non-allergen of the year in 2019. Once parabens were deemed naughty and pretty much banned, the alternatives that came on the market afterwards actually did more harm to consumers because they have much more contact sensitization potential. So we got rid of parabens in a rush because of consumer demand, not understanding what the impact would be in the consumer space, and dermatologists are seeing that. And thereby making clean beauties products uh, are actually less safe. Exactly. And additionally, this past summer, many of us have heard about that study that came out about sunscreens and their ability to penetrate into the bloodstream. The EWG does a great number of demonizing chemical sunscreens, giving them poor scores on their website. Even JAMA Dermatology has recognized in a prior editorial that, yes, there is systemic absorption of these ingredients, but there is no evidence that there is any toxic side effect or adverse effects. And chemical sunscreens are so critical to preventing keratinocyte skin cancers that painting them in a bad light doesn't do them any good when they're trying to prevent skin cancer for their patients. I, I tell you, it really bugs me that the EWG uh, shows up so high in Google when you, when you put sunscreen in the search box because they, they make themselves off to be these experts and they're not experts and they're passing bad information on to consumers. They are not. And the article then goes on to discuss botanical extracts. You know, I get asked about irritating skincare ingredients all the time and the two things that say that are always the culprits for causing irritation in a product are probably your fragrance and botanical extracts because these are complex mixtures or can be complex mixtures and there's fewer safety studies about them and more potential for irritation. And I'm really glad to see that these dermatologists are seeing an increased 
epidemic of contact dermatitis because of increased use of botanical extracts and products. And that gives me great confidence that JAMA also feels this way. The, the authors in JAMA feel that way. And maybe that will lead to marketing companies to remove these kinds of things and stop relying on this kind of marketing trickery. Uh, just because something is a botanical or has a botanical name does not mean that it's good for your skin. Uh, you know, we've evolved as animals alongside plants and certain plants. If they didn't want an, if they didn't benefit from an animal eating the plant or touching the plant, you know, they develop toxins to keep you away. But these are all natural ingredients. Exactly. And we, we try to have safety assessments done by toxicologists on products where I work. They are really strict on botanical extracts, wanting so much documentation that typically you wouldn't think you would have to provide, but it's because of its allergenic and sensitivity potential. The authors also cite a discordance between what dermatologists like themselves know about the science of skin and what is being disseminated to consumers through the clean beauty movement. The EWG Safe Skin Database, ironically, is not data-driven, the authors claim. I'll go figure. <laughs> they take the data out of database. Um, the claims are not <laughs> uniformly agreed on by experts that EWG is getting information from, and oftentimes the EWG will assign a hazard to an ingredient, but then you will look at the data available where they've pulled the information from and it will say data available, none. So how can they say an ingredient is hazardous without any data? Well, they just say it. Yeah, they just say it. Uh, the authors also note the EWG, they feel, has a conflict of interest with consumer safety because they are promoting products on the website, profiting from sales of products and through their certifications that they have. However, if you look at the other regulatory body that looks at ingredient safety, the Cosmetic Ingredient Review Board, you may see it called the CIR. Those claims that they make about ingredients are actually backed by scientific evidence, and the CIR panel actually consists of a number of experts from different disciplines, including dermatology and toxicology. So who are you going to believe? That's where the real information is published, and one of the problems with uh, the Co Cosmetic Ingredient Review Board, though, is that they publish the scientific information. They don't publish it in a way where non-scientists can look at it and understand what they're talking about. Yeah, maybe that's an opportunity for them as well. I know the FDA is trying to take a stance and promote knowledge about cosmetic regulations uh, through social media. Maybe the CIR board could do the same. Yeah, that really is a, a hole in the market. And unfortunately, th th thus far, it's been filled by people who have uh, an agenda uh, where they want to push fear-mongering and get you to buy products that they, they refer, and they get kickbacks from that and things. And it doesn't really have good information about the safety of products. Well, they, they can't make money if people aren't scared. And I agree with the well, that authors. That is the hard part about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree with the authors that there is a big disconnect between our industry of being cosmetic scientists and dermatology. I hear about it all the time. Dermatologists need to be educated on the science of skincare ingredients so they can educate their patients. They feel that when their patients cannot be educated and there's not definitions for clean and natural, with the, which the authors are urging the FDA to hurry up and define. Consumers 
just don't know what they're putting on their skin. And then they have all these health issues, which leads to medical bills and a bigger economical burden, um, more than just someone needing a skin cream for their face. So they did close the editorial by urging the FDA, please define natural and clean to avoid misinformation. And they urge consumers to actually push back to the brands and demand scientific evidence for claims being made be great if that happened i i wouldn't hold my breath to get the fda to, to define natural it's just there's too many people who benefit from it being ambiguous oh yeah and now clean is the new natural so uh, you know the other thing that really bothers me about this is when this movement was just small brands you know trying to make a name for themselves and grow uh you know it sort of felt more isolated but now big companies are getting into this and and that's what I find really uh, insidious, and it's not beneficial for the consumers. It's it's just uh, to me, it's just disingenuous marketing designed to trick consumers into buying products that don't work as well and making you afraid of products that do work. I'm going to make a shampoo that has whatever I want in it and call that clean because it cleans the hair. You can call anything clean; it's undefined. <laughs> You know, uh, this the small company talk and big company talk reminded me of an exchange that I had uh, with somebody, uh, I think it was via email. Uh, one of our listeners was uh, wondering if, if I think people should avoid products from small companies. I think he's heard me say that a few times on the show, uh, that I, think, I always think consumers should stick with products from big companies. Um, and this, this listener saw that as me beating up on small companies. So I wanted to talk about what, what do I mean by that and whether consumers should feel safe using products from small companies or whether they should avoid them. Yeah, I think I've said that a couple times myself as well, more so in particular to sunscreens or products that require a lot of testing. So I think this is something really good that we're going to clear up right here. So my beating up on small companies, as he, as he called it, I think that's really for the benefit of consumers and what I believe is the least risky path for consumers to follow. You know, I don't believe that small companies are bad and like all big companies are good. The thing that I do believe is that if you're just looking at probabilities, there's a higher chance that when a consumer buys a product from a small guy that they might get a product that hasn't been safety tested or might be of questionable quality. This is something that maybe somebody did in their kitchen and they didn't have proper equipment or they saw a video on YouTube, now they're selling stuff on Etsy. It's just small companies, it's much more likely that a consumer would get a, a, a bad product or at least an untested product. It costs money to do safety testing and at least in the United States, there is really minimal downside to a small company just making products and quickly selling them to consumers and then they could just the company could just disappear before something bad happens uh, and they don't invest in safety testing now i'm not saying that all small companies do this i'm just saying in the united states it's easy for that to happen big companies on the other hand they just can't do that they face a lot of litigation and they they have to be able to demonstrate that their products are safe or they risk a lot more than a small company i do want to add that it's not just about a company not having money because honestly that is a big reason or a deterrent for people to do testing. It's financially expensive if you don't have that in-house capability. And even if you do have that in-house capability, instrumentation and people with the know-how to conduct the testing is expensive. But it's also about 
uh, for lack of better word, ignorance. A lot of people don't know what is necessary to demonstrate a 360 safety to a product. And so they don't know, so they don't do it. And that happens a lot with small companies as well because they just don't have the know-how. Exactly. Now, in Europe, things are a bit different. Uh, they have what's called a responsible person. And so there's one person who's responsible for whatever products on the market. And that person kind of faces the, the regulatory repercussions if something goes wrong. In the United States, it's illegal, of course, to sell unsafe products. But the only way that that gets enforced, though, is through litigation or sternly worded letters from the FDA. Exactly. And in Europe, having an unsafe product on the market, I believe, is a criminal offense. So it's a little different. Yeah. Now, I believe things were safer in the U.S. a few years ago because it was really difficult to advertise and distribute your products. So someone you know, couldn't just whip up a batch of something in their kitchen, stick a label on it that they printed on their home computer and then start selling it all over the country, right? Maybe they could go to a, like a farmer's market or, but, you know, or a small boutique shop, but, but that was about it. But now the way the internet is and the ease at which you can make things and make them look actually quite good, you can just do that on a much larger scale. And you can do that with no safety testing and sell it anywhere that the U.S. Postal Service goes. You know, they can put it up on Amazon and advertise on Instagram or Etsy or eBay or any online place. And this has really made it more precarious than ever, I believe, for consumers, at least in the U.S., to be getting products from small companies. You just don't know. Now, I understand the skepticism of big corporations, and, you know, I agree that a lot of their marketing is problematic. Yeah. Remember, we, we talked... We, we talked about Dove, remember, where they were advertising 0% aluminum deodorant, knowing full well that all deodorants are aluminum-free. There are just plenty also of exaggerated claims by the big companies, but, of course, the small companies make those exaggerated claims, too. But when you're talking about product safety, when it comes to safety, there really is no upside to a big company producing unsafe products. The possibility for large class action lawsuits is just not the worth any of the small cost savings that you might get from using dubious raw material sources. Now, I know how much formulas cost big companies to make, and really there is minimal profit in reducing formula costs. I mean, there is you, you, can, you can save some money depending on how much is sold, but uh, it, you cannot grow a business by just cost savings. So, and doing that in an unsafe way, I just don't think it's a thing that happens on any significant scale at a big company. Yeah, I agree. Let's get to some beauty questions. Hi, beauty brains. This is Emily from Spain. Let me start by saying that I'm a great fan of your show and I've been listening to you for a long time now. I even bought your book, which is marvelous, and I recommend it to everyone. Um, I've got lots of questions, but my main concern is sun protection as I live in a very sunny country. Uh, so here it goes. Um, if I put on my face a BB cream with sun protection and then I put some powder on it uh, that contains um, sunscreen too, is it enough or should I put some sun cream beforehand? In general, does it make any sense to buy products like BB creams or skin foundations with 
uh, SPF um, or it doesn't make any sense because we'd have to put a lot of uh, this product on our face. Thank you so much in advance for answering my question and thank you for making my journeys to work much more bearable. Um, greetings from Spain. Bye bye. All right. I think there are two problems with only relying on makeup or makeup type creams like a BB cream to protect your skin from the sun's rays. The first problem with makeup with SPF is that these products don't cover your entire skin surface. So for example, if you have an SPF bronzer or eyeshadow, it will only provide protection where the product is applied. You would need another form of sun protection on the rest of your face. And that's one of the, the problems with the SPF claims in makeup is it, it misleads consumers a bit and it could lead to some unsafe practices. Exactly. The second problem is that BB creams or foundations, especially powder with SPF, is that you are not usually applying enough product to get the advertised SPF value stated on the bottle. The SPF of a product in the United States is calculated through in vivo testing when applying two grams of product on a centimeter squared of skin and seeing how long it takes the skin to burn over a specified UV spectrum. Unfortunately, people rarely apply two grams per centimeter squared onto skin or facial skin. In fact, I've read numbers that the average sunscreen application is 0.5 grams per square centimeter or less. And that's of a regular sunscreen, not, not a makeup product. Exactly. Typically in foundations and BB creams, you're not applying that much on the face or you're dampening it out with a beauty blender or something like that. So you're relying on physical particles in the makeup to block the UV rays. That's how these products of makeup typically get their SPF protection claim is that physical layer blocking the skin. And if that's too thin or spread out, UV rays can easily penetrate through anyway, so you're not getting the advertised value. So while it certainly can't hurt to use BB creams or makeup with SPF for spot protection, for example, under your eyes, a support for sun protection, the brains recommend to use a conventional sunscreen applied directly to the skin before applying any other products. That way you get the full value advertised. We do not recommend to buy and use BB creams and foundations with SPF as a primary defense mechanism for out in the sun. Yeah, on some level, it, it's another one of these misleading uh, misleading claims that it's a misleading benefit because it, it, just putting the word SPF in your makeup that sounds appealing to consumers uh, when in reality it's not actually a much of a benefit that you're getting. All right, what's our next question? Our next question comes to us from uh, email. It says, hi, Beauty Brains. I am Ellie from Germany, and I like to listen to your podcast. I've been using the Green Door Cream Deodorant for several months now. I am very convinced of it because I have no armpit odor at all since then. Now, if I understood it correctly, the effect is that the ingredient baking soda increases the pH of the skin so that no odor-producing bacteria can grow, so it doesn't work against sweating. But that doesn't really bother me at all, and I'm very satisfied with the product. Now, I heard episode 177 from Perry. He said that it was not good to apply baking soda to the skin. Can you elaborate on that? And should I stop using this deodorant cream? Thank you for your answer and love your show. Bye, Ellie. Oh, Ellie, danke für zuhören. Whoa, that was uh, German? Yeah. I, did I ever tell you I lived in Germany until I was 10? 
I did not know that. No. Yeah, that's where my mom is from. So, um, Ellie, danke for listening. Thank you. And and so you could speak German? I can speak German very well for with eight-year-olds and less. Like when I went to Germany this spring and I was spending time with my cousin and her children, um, when we were alone, it was awesome because basically uh, I speak children's German, but I can understand German mostly fully. So... Back to baking soda. I was, uh, I went back and I listened to that show, and indeed, I did sound aghast that people were putting baking soda on their skin, and it's only because I had uh, somehow picked up along my travels the idea or the notion that uh, the alkalinity of uh, baking soda was not a, a good thing that you'd want on your skin. Uh, baking soda is sodium bicarbonate, and it's slightly alkaline material with a pH of around 9. So while it is alkaline, um, it's it's not extremely alkaline like something like sodium hydroxide. Uh, incidentally, you know the old baking soda volcano dis- dis- demonstration? Mm-hmm. I always wanted to do one of those, yeah. <laughs> and and you, so you never did one? No. I've, I've done Mentos and Diet Coke, uh, but I've never oh, made sure, a baking sure. soda... Yeah. Baking soda volcano. Ah, interesting. Well, the baking soda volcano is where you mix baking soda, sodium bicarbonate, with vinegar, which is an acid, and that gives you a bubbly reaction. Um, the the acid in the vinegar reacts with the base in baking soda, and the end result is carbon dioxide. At least that's the gas bubbles that come off. But anyway, my objection to baking soda on the skin was that the alkalinity uh, would make that a skin irritant. Well, I went and looked up uh, up the subject a bit further, did a little more research in it, and in fact, sodium bicarbonate was in fact not found to be a skin irritant. Now, this comes from a report that was written in the Cosmetic Ingredient Review Board, and they reported on a 24-hour patch test of sodium bicarbonate and another direct application of it that was put on rabbit skin. And in neither of these studies did they find irritation. So it looks like my concern... Uh, about sodium bicarbonate on your skin was misplaced. So feel free to continue to use the baking soda products, especially if it's not causing you any problems. Well, I was surprised to hear this as well, Perry, because I think, you know, anytime we hear about something alkaline, we think, oh, there could be a potential to irritate the skin. And I think I would be interested to see if somebody did have a compromised skin barrier, if they would be irritated by baking soda or maybe if people have a, you know, a healthy skin barrier, they're not. I also think it's interesting because I've read safety data sheets on baking soda in the past, and I think they say it's irritating. I don't know if that's just a general like, hey, watch out, don't want anything to happen to you, or if there really is irritation. So not to be all over the dermatology version of JAMA, um, I happen to be in this episode, I guess, uh, but there was a um, medical doctor from the Department of Dermatology at Yale University School of Medicine that did write JAMA Dermatology in 2010, and he also was surprised that baking soda was being recommended for people with scaly skin in another article that he read because his um, interpretation of baking soda on skin was that it's really bad for the skin. So he did a bunch of reading and he wanted to know 
why people thought you could use it for skin or that it was irritating for skin. And so he hit up the local library. And about 100 years ago, one of the recommendations by doctors for scaly skin conditions was to take a baking soda bath. Quietly and without explanation, that treatment recommendation just seemed to disappear and nobody talked about it anymore. So, yeah, so it's still unclear why, but... Uh, he believes that you know when you throw a couple handfuls of baking soda into a huge bathtub, uh, you only get the pH from about five and a half to around eight, which is similar to ocean water. And people with um, some scaly skin challenges really love to be in the ocean, I guess. And so he thought maybe that would be a great therapeutic um, recommendation. So even though baking soda does have a high pH. It's not necessarily a strong alkali, and maybe that's why it could be safe, but uh, they do feel that it helps with uh, desquamation of scaly skin, and yeah, I I was, so I'm really just as surprised as you. (laughs) I wonder how that uh, impacts the skin's microbiome. (laughs) Yeah, well, actually, um, Although you know, sodium bicarbonate is also recommended or touted as an antibacterial, and I did look into some of that as well, and the mechanism is not fully understood. They don't think it has a lot to do with pH. Um, so, And by the way, Perry brings up the microbiome because um, the odor in your underarms comes from bacteria living in your underarms. It's not necessarily that you're sweating, but it's about the bacteria living on there. So Ellie had said, you know, is it because the pH increases and then these bacteria can't grow? Actually, that's not really why they think it happens, but they think that when sodium bicarbonate interacts with the um, with whatever a carbonate ion um, is freed when the salt is reacted and that either destabilizes Uh, the membranes of bacteria or decreases their viability to make essential proteins so they can't um, continue to live. And the odor comes from their metabolism. They're, they're feasting off uh, the sweats and the oils (laughs) that that you produce. And then they produce a smelly after. (laughs) Well, just like humans, we love fatty foods. I can't blame them. It probably tastes delicious. (laughs) Indeed. Hey, look, we got another audio question. Hi, Perry and Valerie. This is Sydney. I'm from Florida. First of all, thank you so much for your show. It's so different, and I always learn something new every time, which is just great. So with that, my question for the day for you is about mineral oil. I was wondering if it's just a filler that does nothing, if it is bad for the skin, or if there are any benefits to it at all. I've read a lot of mixed things online, and I can't tell if it's good, bad, or if it just kind of does nothing and is a filler. Thank you so much. Love you guys. Hi, Sydney. Thanks for the great question. And we know you had another question that we didn't play the audio for, but we'll answer that on a separate special episode. So mineral oil is typically used as an occlusive agent in skincare products, and it also can be used in hair care products, mostly styling. Perry, have you ever used it? I have, actually. Uh, the, the the flagship product of the company I used to work for, Alberto VO5, mineral oil was one of the VO5s. Ooh, so it actually had oil in it. 
That one, that product actually did have oil in it. <laughs> now, the hot oil product does not have oil in it, but that's another story. Yeah. So, um, in addition to using it in the VO5 haircare products, dermatologists can actually recommend mineral oil as a skin protectant. The FDA tells them they can um, when it's used at 50 to 100% in a formulation. And when it's used at 30 to 35% in combination with colloidal oatmeal, they can also recommend it to temporarily protect and relieve minor skin irritations and itching due to rashes, eczema, or both. Mineral oil is monographed as a skin protectant. So there are lots of benefits that we have there. Yeah, it's a, it's a good ingredient and you, you, it works very well in skin moisturizers. Well, people are concerned about it being a dangerous ingredient. I, I think, Perry, we hear about petrolatum and mineral oil all the time. You know, why are you using it? It's, it's not good. Um, and I think that connotation comes from the fact that mineral oil is from the petroleum industry. But I want everyone to know that mineral oils are only permitted in cosmetics if the full refining history is known. I believe we've talked about petrolatum on other episodes, and they have to be purified. It's the same thing here. Um, so basically you have to know the full refining history and know that it's been refined or if the starting material that you get the mineral oil from is not carcinogenic and then it's still purified for subsequent use, you can put it in cosmetics. You know, often you'll see the claim online that, uh, mineral oil is banned in the EU. And this is just absolutely not true. You can use mineral oil in formulations that you're selling in Europe. So it's not banned in the EU. That is, a, that is a mistake and that's a myth. Exactly. Now, also like in the U.S., mineral oil can have con contaminants in it. That's why it's refined. And in the EU, it's the same story. You can use mineral oil. You just can't use mineral oil with contaminants in it. So mineral oil exactly. is a highly complex mixture of hydrocarbons of different structures and sizes. And I think there's two main facets that it can be made of. Mineral oil saturated hydrocarbons, also called MOSH, and mineral oil aromatic hydrocarbons, MOA, which is not as fun to say as MOSH. And it doesn't make as good of a pit. <laughs> yeah. So mosh are not absorbed by the skin, so uh, they're removed anyway, which is great. Uh, but let's say you did get some on your skin. Um, dermal application shows no systemic exposure, so you have nothing to worry about. And MOAs, which are removed by uh, refinement, can be challenging um, health-wise because some of the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons can be a concern to health but they're refined. So with the tight regulations around this matter, I hope that you are relieved that mineral oils, um, which of concern are to health, meaning they're not refined, are not used in cosmetics. And any mineral oil you see in cosmetics where you're getting it, whether you're getting it in the United States or Europe, perfectly safe to use. And it doesn't turn your skin into a cracker. <laughs> Did you ever <laughs> see that mineral oil demonstration where they, uh, it's just ridiculous. No, I, I can you show me that one day? That'd be fun. Yeah, I I also show you some YouTube video, and it's <laughs> it's uh, actually the uh, one of the MLMs. They sent their uh, their salespeople around to demonstrate how bad mineral oil was because they would take a saltine cracker and soak it in mineral oil and show that nothing gets absorbed and it stays dry. <laughs> Well, I think it's a good thing it's it did ridiculous. its job, right? It protected the cracker. 
they definitely didn't promote it as a good thing. Well, maybe you could link a video in the show. And MLM is a multi-level marketing company for those of you guys who don't. Someday we should do a show on MLMs and how much we love them. Yeah, we should. Uh, but I, I do want to address one um, comment uh, that Sydney made in the question about whether or not mineral oil is a filler in cosmetic products. Now, I'll just talk about fillers in general. Um, mineral oil is not a filler. Um, I don't even know what fillers really are um, in cosmetics. I've never known where this myth has perpetuated from. In fact, just a few days ago, I saw an article in Beauty Independent where they interviewed a skincare influencer and he said that he avoids products where fillers are used. And I actually contacted him on Instagram to ask him why he thinks formulators would just put fillers in products to try to understand his point of view, but he hasn't responded yet. I hope he does. Um, Perry, do you know where this term comes from? I I don't. I mean, I it, I kind of remember it from food advertising. Maybe maybe it's what they call Twinkies or something. I don't I don't really know though. I, no, I, it, Twinkies it, it, it are is baffling filled. to me. They're just filled ah. with stuff. Yeah, yeah. So filled with fillers, right? I think what it means is that the companies or formulators are just putting stuff in the formula just to take up space. And I want to let everybody know that. That is not a thing. It doesn't happen. And that's because anything that you add to a formula costs money. And I can assure you as a formulator, I have a financial target to hit and therefore I'm forced to use as few ingredients as possible. So I don't have any money to put fillers in. I've never once said, you know what? What can I throw in here? In my mind, the only fillers are those botanicals that marketing makes you add in. Those are the things that are just taking up space on the ingredient listing on the box. But we're not just adding stuff to fill the product up. Yeah, it's it's it just makes no sense in in cosmetics. Uh, the the term filler it, it makes no sense. And when somebody uses that, it's it's clearly somebody who doesn't understand anything about cosmetic formulas. Exactly. I've also heard people say that water is used as a filler in cosmetic products, and that's also not true. I've heard people say negatively, well, these brands are just selling you water with other stuff. If you have ever seen a shampoo or a facial moisturizer that's been dehydrated, meaning we've taken all the water out, and it's just a little pile of waxy, nasty, sticky stuff left over... It would be impossible to use and it's aesthetically unpleasing. You have to have the water as a solvent to keep things dissolved and as a vessel for other ingredients. So like a cream can't be a cream without water. You have to have the water in there. And the water is not only a solvent but or a vessel for the formula, but it helps impart a texture or an aesthetic feeling that makes it nice to use. So you can't get away without using water either. In fact, you could do this experiment yourself. Just get get your get your body wash, your shampoo, and squirt out some on your shelf or your your bathroom shelf or something, and just let it sit there until it dries up, and you have that little uh, little waxy, flaky mass. And then go ahead and try to use that as a shampoo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. I just want everyone to know fillers and cosmetic products don't exist. Maybe they're in your dog food uh, to fill your dog up or even in human food, but they don't exist in cosmetic products. I can't afford it. Exactly. Our last question. 
yeah, we've got a question, uh, another email question from a listener. Uh, I particularly like this one. Hello, I'm an avid listener to your podcast and wanted to update you on a beauty supplement news. Love when we get uh, updates from listeners. To my surprise, Paula's Choice now sells them. Oh. In my opinion, Paula's Choice has reached an all-new low as supplements do absolutely nothing except deplete your wallet. <laughs> Thank you for letting me vent. Well, Jennifer, uh, feel free to vent anytime you like. I mean, it's I guess as long space. as we agree with it. Right? <laughs> no, she can vent if we don't yeah, agree. I think. Um, I think she was. She knew we would agree. <laughs> That's why she said that. But also, I think you know Jennifer wants us to. You know, maybe Paula's choice is on to something, or maybe they're not. I don't. I think she's looking for us to debunk it. Well, let's take a look at this. You know. I'll be honest up front. I've never been a big fan of supplements. No. And the main reason is the uh, well, the main reason is because they're in the United States. They're barely regulated. You know, people make all sorts of unsupported claims, and some of the things that they can do are downright dangerous. And unlike cosmetics, which you have to be able to prove safety, supplements they're not under the same restriction as cosmetic products. So to me. Uh, and they're also a product that gets ingested, and so you don't know what happens to that pill when it goes through your digestive system and then gets distributed throughout your body. These products actually get inside your body, whereas and metabolized, not just they yeah. go in and then you 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 know you get rid of them the other way. You metabolize them. Exactly. And so there can be all sorts of things going on. So I, I'm not a big fan of supplements. And there's lots of, uh, there, there are at least a few studies that say that in general, uh, none of this is generally uh, supplements, except in cases of uh, being prescribed one from your doctor for your doctor for a specific condition, just generally some healthy person taking supplements, they're not going to really get any benefit. from. And I would say also supplements for beauty, especially if you're malnourished from biotin. Yeah, taking biotin has been shown to to help. But other than that, yeah, if you're you malnourished, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I, and, you know, I'm sure Paula's Choice makes some great products, but to be honest with you, she, she loses some credibility when she went from being the cosmetic cop who reviewed everybody else's products and gave you her uh, two cents on it, which is a, a fine service to provide. Uh, but then when they went from the cosmetic cop to become a cosmetic manufacturer and marketer, uh, you know, you kind of start to lose credibility about what you said about someone else's product because you do benefit by somebody buying your products. Again, I'm saying they make perfectly fine products. I, I, I just don't think that you can fairly evaluate other people's products when you're selling one yourself. And now they've jumped on the supplement bandwagon. That's very disappointing to me. Because there is scant evidence that any supplement will make any significant or noticeable impact on your hair or skin. To me, this is a thing that consumers should just stay away from. Now, to be fair, uh, you know, there was a study from 2006 that showed a pill, and this pill contained soy extract, fish protein, polysaccharides, and extracts from white tea, grapeseed, tomato, vitamin C, zinc. Uh, they had, you know, they had everything in there. Uh, this, this pill uh, showed improvements in this one study as far as people's facial skin went and after six months. And the thing that made this significant was that it was a double-blind 
placebo-controlled study. And while the results may have been mathematically significant, according to the paper, the scores certainly didn't seem to be consumer perceptively significant to me. For example, one of the ratings, which was the overall facial score, one went from 5.3, a rating of 5.3, so the higher rating means more wrinkles. It went from 5.3 to 4.5 in the test group. And in the control group, it went from 5.5 to 5.1 in the control group. I mean, I don't even know what the actual difference would be between someone whose face had a 5.1 rating versus a 4.5 rating. Like, who who wouldn't even know that? So even in this best double-blind placebo-controlled study, uh, you, you get some statistical uh, significant data, but not necessarily anything that anybody would ever notice. Yeah, I say just don't worry about paying for supplements, they're really expensive. Just eat food that has all these vitamins. I mean, drink a white tea, eat some grapes and tomatoes and a grapefruit yeah. and chamomile tea. I don't, what's high in zinc? I don't know. Go to the grocery right. store, get all this stuff. Don't, don't buy those expensive supplements. Actually, absolutely. And I think Jennifer is right, though. The best thing that you can do with supplements is uh, to avoid them because they do deplete your wallet. Wow, everyone. Well, thanks for listening on this episode where I'm back, Perry's back. If you get a chance, go over to iTunes. We're all back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If you get a chance, go over to iTunes and leave us a review. That will help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. And if you had a beauty question, feel free to just email to us at thebeautybrains at gmail.com. And if you want your voice on the show, do a little recording from your smartphone and send us that recording. I do love the audio questions. Also follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at thebeautybrains2018. On Twitter, we're at thebeautybrains. And we have a Facebook page. We're also on Patreon, and we are working on building up Patreon, uh, building up bonuses for our patrons. Uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, maybe by the end of the year, we'll have something. But you know, I, we appreciate anything that you uh, want to say there or subscribe there. Um, if you want to uh, support the Beauty Brains, you can go to Patreon and uh, at Patreon.com/slash/TheBeautyBrains and subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone.